journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shavuot to everybody. Hope you had a wonderful Shabbat, as I did. Um, we are in the Southern Hemisphere, most people listening are from South Africa, though I do know that we have an international audience. Uh, the weather is fantastic. Shabbos are starting to become long, but, but long enough to have a schlop and to enjoy time with the family and to actually enjoy just the beautiful warm rays of the sun. And on Shabbat is a special time to learn Torah, to sit down and, and reflect on the week, reflect um, in what the Torah is teaching us. As we know, there is an adage that we must live with the times. And so as Jews, we always go back into the parsha and we look at what messages the parsha can teach us. And this is what really we do every single week here, certainly on my slots, and I'm sure on other uh, Torah slots on Chai FM, is that we look into the Torah to see what wisdom we can derive. What's unbelievable for me right now and by divine providence is that we are learning the parsha of Toldot, we just started it. We started it last week. Um, it is all about, um, as we are going to get into now, uh, the discussion of the birth of Yaakov and Esav. And why do I find this unbelievable um, is because what we are going to learn today and probably learn for the next you know, couple of uh, uh, um, weeks is that that which happened 4,000 years ago in the Bible is actually a portent. It is a sign of what would and has happened and will happen to the Jewish people who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how things will pan out at the end of days. And I think I think the end of days, the days that we are living in now, are very much on everybody's minds. Um, the world is in a as we say Jew- Jewishly, in a balagan, in a mess. Um, it feels like we are in a washing machine, a lot of sudsy water around, the drum is spinning, and the dross is being separated. And there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of um, an inability for, for, for a person to actually live with clarity. So this it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting and I think pretty exciting that we actually go and look at uh, what is what what happened 4,000 years ago historically in the Torah and then go and see, you know, what is happening right now when um, <clears throat> when, when we are living in, in, in today's time. So for those of you that are following um, in, in, the, in, in the, the, the text, we are looking at chapter 25 of Genesis. We started last week. We spoke last week a lot about the fact of us leaving a legacy for our children, for our children to know who they really, really are, and um, for us to pass that on and on. That has always been a priority for the Jewish people. And today we sit, we sit down, we, we, we look at our, our uh, ancestors, we go back and say, are we the children of Abraham? Are we the children that Abraham envisioned? Are we the people that are following that legacy? And I think that we can say to a very large extent, yes, we are. 
we are, we are still following in the footsteps of our forefather and foremother, Abraham and Sarah, and, and obviously then Yitzchak and Rivka, and, um, and, and then Leah and Rachel and Yaakov. And, um, I don't think, no, I, no, this is wrong what I'm saying. It's not, I don't think. I know that there is no other nation on this planet that can go and say, I am the same as my great-grandparents, who were the same as their great-great-grandparents, who were the same as their great-great-great-grandparents, and go all the way back to the beginning of time where, uh, you know, I can go and say, I am the same, or I stand for the same um, morals and same way and vision of life as my forefather Abraham. The Jewish people can say that as a whole. And um, we've, we've seen con- continuity there, and this is actually quite unbelievable, just the, the thought, if you ever wanted to understand the authenticity of Yiddishkeit, the authenticity of Torah, certainly this, this is a very, very telling sign um, that we are doing exactly and, and behaving and being exactly the same as our forefathers. Having said that, everything that happened with our forefathers also manifests itself now, um, um, not only today, but throughout history, uh, it, it manifests itself in macrocosmic ways. So we're going to zoom back in. So Ele told us, uh, Yitzchak ben Abraham, these were the generations of Yitzchak, the son of Abraham. Abraham gave birth to Yitzchak. We spoke about all of that. He married uh, uh, Rivka, who came from a corrupt household, and down the line, she is infertile. Isaac prays for her, his prayers get answered, and she falls pregnant. This is where we're going to pick up now. We're going to go on chapter 25, verse 22. The children clashed within her. And she said, In Cain, if this is the way it's supposed to be, Lama Anachi, why should I go in by Lidrosh et Hashem? She went in to inquire of God. So just to give a little bit of background, we all know, post de facto, but from the words Vehit Rotsatsu Habanin, Banin is in the plural, sons, and so Rivka understood that she was carrying twins. Now, there was no, in those days, scans or the ability to actually understand what was going on inside her stomach. But what she did pick up was a lot of turbulence, a lot of turmoil. It was a lot of fighting. And she needed to go find out what was going on. So what did she do? She landed up going to a yeshiva. No, she did not go to the gynecologist. She went to shame the son of Noach. We are going to follow up further more on this entire escapade, but for now, we're just going for a little bit of an ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back, and we are going to delve into chapter 25, verse 22 of the Torah, which we just read before the break, where the children, there was a turmoil in Rivka's stomach. They were clashing inside of her. 
and she she was quite despondent. She said, "If this is the way it is, why should I go? Why should I go on?" Meaning, wow, what a terrible pregnancy! Is this what it is? Is this is what it's about? Having children. So she went to inquire of God. It was a very very strange pregnancy, and she needed to go and see what was going on. What does it mean that the children were in turmoil? Well, the Midrash goes and tells us that when she entered her seventh month, it it, it seemed that within her, the the two children were were beginning to show signs of being very different. Uh, one appeared to be good, while the other seemed to be bad, and she was very aggrieved at that, and she felt like they were wrestling each other. How did she know that? So Rivka wandered around, and so when Rivka would pass through the academy of Shemba Aver, that is the yeshiva that was set up by Noah's righteous son Shem. He was still alive, if you remember. Abraham um, had dealings with Shem, and then Yitzchak went to learn in the yeshiva of Shem and Aver um, after his akeda for three years, and later on further when we get to Yaakov before he. Comes to Lavan's house, goes and um, lives in, uh, or not lives, goes to learn in the yeshiva of Shemer Aver. So it seems that the yeshiva of Shemer Aver was the place where one tried to get spiritual answers or get guidance spiritually about what was going on. So we are told that when Rivka passed through the the academy of Shemer Aver, it was as if Yaakov. Um, would want to push and he would want to come out into this world. And then if she continued walking Rivka and she passed near a uh, uh, an idol-worshipping place, it seemed like Aesop wanted to do the same. Well, the first thing that you could ask just on the sideline was, what was she doing by a temple of idolatry? What is Rivka doing by a temple of idolatry? So we are told that she wanted to emulate Sarah. She was trying to convert uh, people to faith in God. And so what she did, uh, just like her in-laws did, Abraham worked with the men, Sarah worked with the woman. So Rivka would walk back and forth near the idol's temple and she would engage the woman in conversation. She would try to teach them the ways of God and when Therefore, she was close to a temple of idolatry. Asaph would push against her as if he wanted to emerge from the womb and go into the temple. So there was this, this tension, this turmoil inside the womb. Other commentators go and say what was really happening there is they were fighting over inheritance. Now, who? what was the fight? One wanted to inherit this world and the other, the world to come. Well, you can understand that if Yaakov represents the good and the holy and Asa the opposite, Yaakov was wanting to inherit the world to come, and Asa wanted to inherit this world. And so they, they, they were struggling. Another commentator goes and says, that, was, that wasn't necessarily the struggle. It wasn't the fetuses themselves that were arguing but rather the angels that were appointed as guardian angels over them. Now, here's what's very interesting. The guardian angel of, the Jew, of, 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 of Yaakov was Michal, Michael. He was appointed guardian angel over Yaakov. 
And the wicked Samael um, was Asaph's guardian angel. And it was these two angels that were wrestling with each other. Samael attempted to kill the good child, i.e. Yaakov, but Michal came to the rescue, was about to consume Samael with fire, but since the angels consist of fire, a greater angel can um, a, a greater angel can consume a lesser one, and so this was the the, the struggle, the pain that uh, Rivka was feeling. It says eventually God interfered; He separated the angels, and He in, He He divided up the inheritance between them. Asaph was given this world. Yaakov was given the world to come. And once that was decided, um, the two could no longer argue. Now, this in and of itself is very, very interesting. And I want to pick up and I want to deliberate it a little bit more. But just for us to, again, just maybe um, build in a little bit of the meat around the story. What did Rivka do? Okay, she understood there was great drama being enacted inside her womb. Um, first, she thought it was natural. And then the Midrash goes and says that she actually went and asked the other woman if they had ever had a similar experience. And this is why the verse says, if this is the way it is, why should I go on? Meaning what she was saying is, is that if I had known that my pregnancy would be so painful, I would never have asked God to give me children. Now, what's even more interesting, before we go back to the actual physical argument, okay, is that she uses the word lama ze anochi. Okay? We've translated it as why should I go on? Okay? But lama means why. Anochi, why me? Ze seems superfluous. Why this me, if you're actually wanting to, tra to translate it um, very uh, simply? So the Midrash comes to tell us that, in fact, originally, Rivka was destined to have 12 children, okay? Uh, 12, all, 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 the entire, all the 12 tribes she was, supposed to be give, she was supposed to give birth to. If you actually look at the word uh, ze, uh, ze um, what you will see is that it's made up of two letters, a Zion and a He. And we know that there is numerical value. Zion is seven, He is five, five and seven is, is twelve. And so, um, what we, we actually see over here is she's saying, Lama Ze, why should, Lama Anochi, why should I give birth to Ze to the twelve tribes? Are you kidding me? This, this pregnancy is killing me. I'm not interested. I don't want to, uh, I want to be relieved of the, of this destiny, of this, des uh, this destiny. And so God does relieve her and she only has two sons and the one son, Yaakov, then gets, um, sent the responsibility of, uh, giving birth to the 12 tribes. Now she goes to Inquire, it says, inquire of God. She goes to inquire of God. And what does that mean? It means that she went to the yeshiva, to the academy of shame, who was 
as we said before, the son of Noah, to find out what will happen to these unborn children. Very interestingly, uh, the Midrash also brings out and says, why didn't Rivka go to her father-in-law? Her father-in-law was a prophet, he was a saint, he understood everything. Well, she had a sensitivity, so we are told, that uh, she did not want to grieve, uh, be aggrieved to see his daughter-in-law suffering so terribly, so she figured, let me go out to a third party and um, let me find out what it is that they that they have to say. So now let's go on to verse 23, and I think that's really where we're going to land up stopping because there's just so much to be said over here. What is the message? What is the the direction that Shemba Eva gives her? By Yomer Hashem, and God says to her, meaning through the prophecy of Shem, Shnei goyim bevitnech. There are two nations in your womb. Ushnei leomim And two um, governments or two nations will separate from your insides. Yipareidu ulum ulum yaamats. And they will separate from, uh, they'll separate from your inside. The upper hand will uh, go from one government to the other. But the greater one will serve the younger. That is the prophecy. What what was the prophecy really saying? What they were saying was, Rivka, you have two children in your womb. And each one will give rise to a separate kingdom and a nation. While they are still in your womb, God says, I will divide them. One will be good, the other will be wicked, and the two will never be equal. When one empire expands, the other will be subjugated. And the the reason why you are experiencing such great agony is because they are fighting with each other. Each one is boasting their portion. One about the world to come, and one about the, 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 this world. So essentially what was happening in Rivka's stomach was that she was giving birth to the world arena as we have known it, as we know it, and as we will know it until it is going to be resolved, albeit that I believe it is going to be resolved in our day, very, very shortly in fact. Um, one of the other interesting things is that they will both have descendants and the descendants will fight against each other. And what they're talking about here is that from Jacob and Esau, from Jacob and Esau, Esau, you will land up seeing the proliferation and the expansion of two nations, obviously Yaakov giving birth to the Jewish nation, and Esau becoming what we know today as the Christian Western world. We spoke about it a little bit before in in, in the closing of Parshat Chayesara, that in fact there are three major nations today. We've got the Jewish people, we've got the Western Christian world, and we have the Arab Arab world, 
Muslim world. And those come from the three protagonists in our story. Yaakov gives birth to the Jewish people, um, Esav to the entire Christian Western world. Esav had many, many children. And Yishmael to the Arab world, he too had many, many, many children. So here now we are looking at the conflict between the Western world, the Christian world, and the Jewish world. And what we can see is that, in fact, there was and always has been um, this seesaw effect, if I could say it that way, between the, 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 the struggle, and you can see the struggle still today, between Jacob and Esau. And it actually, in fact, it actually, in fact, um, is, is, is something that we've seen throughout history, good and bad. Because what does it say? It says, um, yiparedu um mil um, that the, the, the hand will go from one government to the other. Meaning that never in any point in time in history will you see the fact that they will live in harmony. Not forever and ever. But until a a a, a a a a a while now, which I am going to talk about now. But until this point in time, um, you will see that when the Christian world was very strong, the Jews were subjugated. When the Jews were strong, the Christian world was weak and, so to speak, subjugated. And the seesaw went on backwards and forwards. Um, like that. In fact, the Midrash goes on and says, um, the one who will be born first, meaning Esau, will have a descendant called Hadrian. And we all know that Hadrian was the Roman emperor from 17, um, from 117 to 138 in the common era. And the younger will have a descendant who will be King Shlomo. And both of these kings will gain great fame in the world. But we know ultimately the Romans destroyed the temple and that subjugated the Jews. And um, throughout history now, particularly for the last 2,000 years since the destruction of the second temple and the loss of our, not only of our temple, but of our holy land, the Jewish people, as representative by Yaakov, have been subjugated under the tyranny of the Christian world. And tyrannical it has been in the name of religion and in the name of subjugation. Not only did the Romans take us out and, you know, bring us um, and bring, brought us into slavery, but we saw the Crusaders um, and their, their marauding, uh, um, expeditions against the Jewish people and all all throughout history even until we get to to Hitler and to uh, Germany which is part of the Christian world we saw that the Jews landed up under the subjugation of Esau. It was a rule if Esau was up, Yaakov was down and if Yaakov is up then Esau needs to be down and then this obviously then bears a lot of discussion and um, and and uh, uh, I guess a lot of thought about 
what is actually happening today? What is happening on the world arena in terms of this tension between Yaakov and Esau? Now, one cannot but look at the world arena today and see that we have an Esau in control of the Christian world. Yes, lots of you are saying that Asaph is about to move on, maybe. And uh, I know that uh, I don't have to spell it out that we're talking about President Trump right now. Um, but it's not about an actual person. It is about the idea of that, or that represents the Asaph in this world. It's interesting. It's uncanny. That ace, that, 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 that Trump looks like an Asav. He's red and ruddy. He's arrogant. He's a conqueror of the world. And this is exactly what Asav becomes. We will follow it up as we're going through the verses in the Torah. But this is what an Asav becomes. There's only one new thing that is happening now that has never happened before. And that is that Asaph has stopped being tyrannical towards the Jews. For the first time, I think now in the last four years, we have been able to find a friend in the White House. We have found a brother who is actually a kind of be like looking and saying big brother. We are finding a brother in the White House who actually looked after us, who recognized our existence, who brought the embassy back to Israel who's helped make peace with our other brother, Yishmael. So my question to you is, do you believe, and I'd love you to tell me on 34519 or 0618951019, do you believe that the balance of this tension is now turning? IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. We're discussing the tension between Esau and Yaakov. The, the tension has always, most times, besides certain periods in Jewish history when the Jews had the, the temple and we were on top of things, and in another story which I'm quickly going to share with you now, we've been under the subjugation of Esau. But today in 2020, since actually 2016, we're starting to see the the balance being turned around that no longer are we are having Asab subjugate us. What is that saying to us? What is it saying to you? Do you think things are changing in this world? Or do you think it's just an entire farce and Trump's going to move out of office and we're just going to carry on living the way we've been living since from before? Love to know your thoughts. Three four five one nine zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. But there's a few things I want to still share with you. It says that the older one will be born uncircumcised, as all boys are, but the younger will be born circumcised, which is an exception to the rule. And when you have a circumcised child, you must know that you've given birth to a child that's very, very holy. Continues the Midrash, if he is worthy, the younger one will dominate the older. If the descendants of the younger, one, younger son sin, however, they will be dominated by the descendants of the older. 
Now, if you look in the actual, this actual verse, Te'umim, okay, which are twins, is usually spelled with an Aleph. Okay, it's Tet, Aleph, Vav, Mem, Yud, Mem. But if you go look in the next verse where uh, they go and tell him that uh, that she had twins, um, it says, V'yimelu yameha laledet v'hinei tomim v'vitna. The time came for her to give birth, and there were twins in her womb. If you look at the word Te'umim there, the Aleph is missing. Why is the Aleph missing? We're told because since one of them was destined to be wicked, a letter was deleted. Also, strangely, if you look at the, the verse Shnei Goyim, normally Goyim means nations of the world, um, if you look there, it's Gimel Vav Yud Mem. That's how we normally spell it. But here, the Yud is put in place of the Vav, so we have two Yuds. Gimel Yud Yud Mem. We still pronounce it Goyim, but it really spells out the word Gayim. Gayim mean lofty ones. And this was an allusion to an incredible relationship. This was an exception to the rule where we had a relationship where Yaakov and Esav actually managed to co- coexist. And when was that? That was in the time of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Yehuda the prince, and the Roman emperor Marcus Antoninus. Marcus Antoninus, uh, we're talking about the period 121 to 180 in the Common Era. Okay, they were both huge leaders, Obviously, Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi was head of the Sanhedrin. He was head of the Jewish people. Marcus Antoninus was the Roman emperor. They were both unbelievably wealthy, and they could afford, we are told, according to the Midrash, that they could serve radishes and lettuces both in the rainy season and the dry season. Why are they saying that? Because those vegetables could not be stored in ancient times, which meant that you had to import them from distant lands, and this was an indication of their wealth and power. Rabbi Yehuda Nasser, we know, was a tzaddik, he was a saint, and he didn't derive any, any enjoyment from the world. Nevertheless, he never allowed his household to go with nothing. He had an extremely large household, and he would feed it well. Antoninus became a very, very close friend of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, and he was very, very fond of the Jewish sages. One day, he actually said to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, I want my son Commodus to take my place as king, and I wish to have the Senate confirm it. Meaning what? Um, that unlike other uh, empires, the Romans were hostile to the idea of royal succession. So they would never automatically give the throne to an emperor's son or a relative. What would happen is they would gather the entire senate in a large room. They would allow a bird to fly around until it became exhausted. And when, since there was no other perch, it eventually would get exhausted and it would come and it would land on one of the assembled men and they would be chosen as king. And that was, it didn't matter that if they had landed on one that was the least qualified, but they could still gain power. Now, Antoninus asked the question of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, how can I make sure my son wants to, can succeed me because I want him to exempt the city of Tiberia from taxes 
because here in Tiberia, all the citizens of Tiberia were in fact Torah scrolls, and because he was so fond of Jewish sages, uh, he wanted to grant them this favor. So how could I do it was a question that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi asked of Antoninus. I mean, Antoninus asked of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. He says, if I, if I try to do both things, the Senate will only grant me one. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi would never tell him directly. would always tell him in, 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 a, in the form of a pantomime. What did he do? He brought in two men, one riding on the shoulders of the other, and the, uh, the one that was on, on the shoulders had a dove in his hand. And he turned around to the one who's, who's, who, um, the bottom one, the guy at the bottom, and he said to the guy at the bottom, release the dove. Now, the only way, obviously, for the guy at the bottom to release the dove was obviously to take the top one off his shoulders. That's how he answered it. Marcus Antoninus understood the pantomime. He was saying what he had to do was appoint his son during his lifetime, and the son, as the emperor, would then be able to exempt Tiberia from the taxes. And this is the way they communicated. There's another another occasion where Antoninus asked Rabbi Yehuda Navi, and, and what should he do? The senators are causing him great troubles. So again, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi didn't answer outright. He brought him into a garden, picked a flower, and he removed its petals one by one. And that was a response, an illusion, that Antoninus should remove his enemies one by one, without arising suspicion of the others. It says that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi did not even want to whisper this highly sensitive advice to his friend, because as we know, a spoken word can always be heard. It says in Kohelet, curse not the king even in your thought, for a bird of heaven will carry the voice. So Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was very, very careful when he gave uh, advice to um to, to, to Antoninus that he gave it in a way that was by illusion. We're going to go for a little bit of a break and just kind of like bring it to the year 2020 and actually understand what is happening now. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back and we need to wrap up. So just in terms of Looking at this relationship, this was an exception to the rule where Marcus Antoninus um, is, you know, promoting and helping the Jewish people. There are one or two outspoken rabbis today who believe that uh, Trump is a reincarnation of Marcus Antoninus. And just like Marcus Antoninus helped Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi in his day, Trump very much has helped us in our day to re-establish uh, the, the, the validity and the integrity of the Jewish people and the Jewish land. What begs to be answered and for us to wait for is that these four years showed a tipping of the scales where um, it's not about ASAP domin dominating us and subjugating us as we have been subjugated for the last 2,000 years. We are in the gallot of Edom, Edom being the, 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 the gallot of Asaph. Edom, he was, he was ruddy, he was red, and so we're in that gallot right now. Times are, are very strange, and we've lived a very, very strange year with COVID. We are seeing a tremendous disruption in America with the Democrats and the Republicans, 
And it really is an internal struggle now amongst in, in ASAP's camp themselves as to who is going to 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 take the lead. Are we going to see um, the good, i.e., and when I'm talking about good, conservatism, um, the, the 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 need for friendship with the Jewish people um, come to the fore, or are we going to be swallowed up again? Um, in the negativity that that Edom was really, really known for. Well, time will tell, and time is very, very short because uh, things have to come to a head. I believe that we are going to see a lot of disruption. We're going to see things turn upside down. What you think today is probably what will not happen, and something completely different will happen tomorrow. But we, it's, it's nice to have a little bit of suspense in our lives. So we're going to pend it there. I'll be back next week, please God, and we will continue our discussion. I will share more, perhaps about the stories of Rabbi Yehuda and Marcus Antoninus. And until then, do what's important right now. Learn Torah every single day. Do another act of goodness and kindness. And let the show unfold, because the resolution of this struggle that Rivka felt in her womb is really coming to the fore and is coming to fruition. And with that forethought, I wish you a Shavua Tov and a wonderful week ahead.